You are now listening to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Paul. He gives me the salute, and then the audio-only listeners are left in the dark. I like that. <laughs> Hi. Paul. How you doing, you, man? Would you like to introduce the show? I'm going to put the reins in your hands for a minute. You're listening to Out of the Blank, and I am this week's guest. Or is it today's guest? How often do you have guests? I do a daily show. but It's daily. That's incredible. That's how I got to 900. That's amazing. It's tiring to you, sir. It's tiring. It's like being in social media for five minutes. It's like, you know, when you sit in a pool for too long, your hands get all pruny. This is like that, but 10 times the speed. (laughs) (laughs) But But you're learning by doing right. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm getting definitely getting better at it, but I think through the last time we, it's been a while. It's been about almost a year and a half, hasn't it? Or maybe shorter. Yeah. I think something like that. Um, Any big changes? You go on keto. Yeah. That's a keto side. That's a keto side. <sighs> what a keto side. Like keto diet, that side that you had a uh, that's a keto side. That means when they're tired and they need meat and they're like, oh, I'm keto, I can't. No, no, I eat loads of meat. Well, I mean, I eat quite a lot of meat because I've always been someone who goes to the gym and getting protein through dairy does not agree with me at all so uh protein farts are the worst aren't they (laughs) (laughs) protein stomach man lactose is not my friend so um yeah i i eat a fair amount of meat although i'm I'm kind of a guilty meat eater like as a as someone with a a background and undergrad in environmental science i i kind of understand the the numbers to a degree of of the impact of meat and the the meat industry on on the production of greenhouse gas and stuff like that and um just energy use in general so i generally eat white meat there you go there's a little tidbit i like it i mean I nothing in, to do with egyptology i live in a beach town and i mostly eat fish but hey that's the point of the show is we don't focus on one thing we like to go around the board but i did have like i told you before i have a conspiracy little thing that recently i think a lot of the world has focused either on tiktok videos or other things but i came across this page of like egypt history and i was like oh this is interesting i i I like egypt stuff and i like pyramids and i think everyone wants to know how they built and much like you've shattered my illusions in our first episode as they weren't built by aliens i was like damn but i found a new method all right so buckle up for this one so the pictures of the hieroglyphics are them carrying the blocks, but the blocks look like normal size blocks. But then you examine the pyramids, the blocks are huge. So were they 900 feet tall? What is it? And like the hallways that they have, and they have them walking in through the doorways. Were they just taller? They could barely fit through them. So it was like a normal hallway. And then to us, they're like mountains. I don't know. Maybe that's a crazy thought. Yeah, so that's that's a bunch of crazy thoughts. Um what? The yeah, internet well, never lies average, to me. <laughs> dude, the, the average Egyptian was from all the from all the you know remains, human remains that um have been discovered, the average Egyptian was around five feet tall, maybe five and a half feet if they were particularly tall. Um we have a couple that are six foot or or would have been around six foot. Um I think Ramesses second is one of those. Seti the first might be another as well, which makes sense because they're directly related. Um so yeah, they were around five feet tall. The whole lifting blocks thing is a really interesting controversy. And actually what I should have done is looked back at, I did a whole course on this, on on how the pyramids were built a little while ago. Um, and basically, yes, we there are a few depictions of them kind of lifting the blocks or using sledges to move monuments and things like that. And on those, um, so to answer directly your question about the size of the blocks to start with, the blocks in the pyramid vary in size, and it's the foundational blocks that are obviously the biggest. They're also the blocks that they had to lift the least high, you know. So you've got the quarry. We've got all the records from the quarry, which was like just down the ways um, of where all the limestone blocks came from. The conspiracy theorists 
like to dismiss that as as anecdotal evidence or uh, that's just the quarry where the ca the limestone casing came from and stuff like that and it's like well well no there's a there's a huge limestone quarry just down the ways for where all of the case casing and internal blocks have come from so you've got the fine tura limestone which is where a lot of the casing comes from and then you've got you know the more generic kind of yellow limestone that we see on the pyramids which came from just down the ways and we've got records and stuff like that and one of the biggest finds that kind of helped figure this out because just just before anyone kind of switches their brain off and goes oh this guy's just a traditional egyptologist i spent my entire egyptological career questioning the orthodoxy and looking for the evidence that made things fit um i came at it uh, from coming in to the field from like a an alternative egyptology background and then became uh an egyptologist per se um through kind of studying the academia and doing the PhD and stuff like that. But at no point was I required to sign off, you know, on a belief system that says, you know, or oh, you have to believe that this is the way we did it. I just looked at all the evidence and it, it actually really adds up very well. Um, the city, city of the Pyramid Builders was one of the most comprehensive things. It, it helps tie everything together. It helps kind of collaborates the evidence between how many blocks were being shifted by different work groups how many different work groups they had the number of those work groups they all had different work group names um and we kind of start building this picture of how these people were living how much work they were doing how many people and there was huge amounts of people involved i'd have to actually look back at the scripts for the course to remember all the exact stats but it's like wow this was a substantial city a city of the pyramid builders it's called um and and it's right next to the Giza Plateau. And uh, you look a little crestfallen, like I'm shattering your illusions. No, I'm just I'm thinking because when you were saying you were you're not like a strict Egypt, like you weren't in the whole scientific. Everyone wants to go to science, science, science. And you, you didn't go into that. You're just looking at the basic facts of that. I think with the world right now is every like academia is being torn down kind of in a way with science or whatever we consider fact there is no science anymore and that's with a lot of what the internet really has the capability to offer is that even a conspiracy person will dig deeper and deeper into something where they can get a bunch of information where you can pull out some hot button topics out of some things i've talked to a few people and i never even understood the idea of the younger dryest theory but then that's now been brought to my attention more than one time by maybe if that's considered i don't know if that's considered fact or if that's just considered a theory out there that i know graham hancock was like one of the main people behind that um I just find the conspiracy stuff so entertaining because as much as you got to draw the line like when the earth becomes flat but it's it, there's so much work that gets put into it where it's like admirable where I'm like, I don't think in education anymore. I know we talk about degrees, for instance, necessarily, there's a lot of people out there that might not have a degree from a school. And in some ways, there some of those people might have a wrong standard of teaching or maybe a wrong tunnel that they dive down. But I see a lot of people getting like very valuable information and stuff like that, much like myself at times where I'm able to pull and look into a topic and maybe watch a documentary on Netflix or something like that, despite maybe some mild inaccuracies on some things you really can get some information on this stuff as a whole and i see this kind of even between the conspiracy people or someone that's studying egyptology they both have the same interest in the same thing as these amazing objects that have been created i mean that was the main thing that highlighted to me about that page and then seeing that little idea that someone put out there is like oh maybe they were 900 feet tall i was like it's a good thought, but I think it gets you interested in digging more into it because the first thing I did when I left that page was I Googled, like, is this shit real? And I started looking into it. I was like, okay, it's it's not. But I thought I would pick your brain on this topic because there's a lot of ideas of what these things were created for, uh, what a mirage is. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I, like, I want to hear your thoughts on it coming from an actual field of study that focuses in on this. That's a deep breath again. Another keto sound. <laughs> isn't the um, isn't the keto diet all about having fats and learn teaching your body how to burn preferentially burn fat? So you're eating a lot more meat. I thought on keto than you were if you weren't. I don't know. I've not tried keto personally. I've just heard 
people like Mark Sisson talk about it on uh, health theory and shows like that. I stopped but, following diet trends when Adkins slipped and fall and cracked his head open. And I was like, well, apparently you don't, you need some meat at some times. <laughs> well, to, to get into that with you, look, uh, information hates a vacuum, right? So, and where a vacuum is perceived, it's usually just perceived. Like, I think part of the problem of academia, and this is something that I address, particularly in the book I wrote, Profane Egyptologists, but I was kind of antagonizing or deconstructing uh, how naive we were, the, um, the boundaries of Egyptology and how it interacted with the other. So the alternative person, the person on the fringe, how we as a field responded to alternative Egyptology back at the millennium, which, you know, 20 years ago, actually 22 years ago now, um, which many listeners may not remember, but there was a, a whole kind of hoo-ha around the Giza plateau about, you know, a, a chamber of secrets was going to be found under the paws of the Sphinx or something was going to happen at the pyramid or at the turn of the millennium because Edgar Casey had had these visions and there was a lot made out of little, from authors such as you know Hancock and Baval and and people like that and I've read their stuff I've actually I've met some of them um I used to go to the questing conference uh, back in the late 90s and spoke with a bunch of people there and their theories are interesting and exciting and they sell books and um a lot of them tend to kind of work from a conclusion. It's we've got this idea that this is the case and now we're going to look for stuff that fits it. And the, the real sad thing is that if we could actually, instead of sitting down and being antagonistic, this has always been part of my approach. Instead of just sitting down and being antagonistic with each other, if we just sat and had a moderated conversation where people weren't bringing in preconceived ideas, but were literally just looking at the evidence in front of them, then we would solve a lot of these things very, very quickly. You know, you've got, you've got people on YouTube now, I won't call them out by name, but getting millions and millions of views just by expressing their opinions on, you know, the pyramids and how they couldn't have oh, been built shit. by human beings yeah. and stuff like that, right? And, and then you've got archaeologists who've been kind of trying to be science communicators, basically, I guess, or archaeology communicators for the last kind of 15 years, getting a fraction of those views and not getting their message across, which was let's just kind of look to the evidence a lot of the time. Now, look, that's not to say that academia doesn't have its problems. It does. Um, you know, academia itself has been kind of dragged into a political miasma of problems nowadays, but archaeology itself is going through some real shifts over here as well. Yeah, like funding. archaeology yeah. departments. Yeah. Like, departments shutting down and kind of funding disappearing and you know so positions just evaporating into the ether um and so what academia is struggling in egyptology is a small field and that, that's something that we need to remember there's i think a misconception on both sides there's a misconception of the egyptologist um being in control of the narrative and somehow being this culturally significant or powerful figure which we're not um there's this other kind of idea or concept which is equally as broken of the heroic alternative archaeology truth seeker who's just there for the, the to bust the mystery and bring the people the truth and and kind of bust open this false construction created by these warped conservative egyptologists and it's like well most Egyptologists I've met aren't at all conservative and they're just as curious as anyone else. They're curious enough that they've put their money where their mouth is and gone and studied this crap, despite the fact there's no freaking jobs in the field anymore. And, and yet nobody wants to listen when we come back and say, Hey, look, we've got a ton of complementary evidence here that suggests that these people in this period built these things this way. We can see an evolution of how they were built. If we look back to the old mastaba, which is like the, it's an Arabic word for bench, which is, um, an old form of tomb that comes from the pre-dynastic times. And they started building the mustaba out of mud, mud brick. They moved on to building them out of stone. Eventually it was granite. All of these were security features. All of these were an evolution of a design and technology based on a need to protect the centralized wealth of the king. This is what it comes back to, political power and wealth, economics, always. And 
as we go through time, we see, yes, ritualistic aspects get linked to this very pragmatic response to tomb robbers, okay? Um, not just tomb robbers as well. I mean, why do we bury people six feet underground? So they're not dog, dug up by dogs and eaten, yeah? So that we don't see our loved ones' remains sprawled all over the ground while dogs eat their liver and kidneys, mm. all right? That's why we bury people. Sorry, I'm on a rant, but like, I just want to get to the end of this point anyway. So what we've got and what I found when I was researching the kind of evolution of pyramids and tombs and looking at all of the research and evidence that had been done was that there's a really kind of obvious when you look at it, linear um, evolution of the technology needed to build a pyramid by just looking at the mastaba and looking at how it grew. Now, the most famous example of that is the step pyramid of Djoser. And then after that, you get Sneferu, a dynasty later, going, okay, I've seen a step pyramid, which is a mustaba on top of a mustaba on top of a mustaba on top of a mustaba. It's loads of these benches built up into one thing. Yeah. And it vaguely resembles a pyramid, but it's not a true pyramid yet. It's just a stack of mustabas, which are supposedly going to protect the king's tomb from anyone digging down into the top of them. Right. And Sneferu comes along and goes, I want to make a true pyramid that's smooth. I want you to fill that out. So fig let's figure out a way to build this thing so that it goes up, but we can cover it and stuff. And just during his reign alone, we see him attempt this and fail numerous times. And yet, when you look at the books written by the alternative camp, by and large, they will come out with egregious statements such as, the pyramid comes from nowhere. Hieroglyphs appeared out of nowhere. And it's like, no, they didn't. You just don't know where the evidence is. You're not looking at the evidence. You don't want to find that evidence. You actively, if you get that evidence put in front of you, try to dismiss it or bring it into your own narrative instead of just trying to objectively assess it and go, well, how do humans do stuff in our experience? And that's the job of an archaeologist. It's to go, all right, how do humans do stuff? And um, what's the evidence for how these things came about rather than what do we think about these things and what narrative do we need to create in order to fit that narrative that we're trying to you know build for people and it sells books it sells books and it gets youtube clicks and it makes people fortunes to create and spin mythology and stories around this that aren't necessary because these things have unfortunately rather in a rather pedestrian way kind of been explained even if we don't have a blueprint for a pyramid there's a very good understanding of how they evolved and why they evolved the way they did so I have a couple points. Um, first, on the clicks of how the pyramids, the fantical, whatever fantasy ideas of how they're built gets more clicks on YouTube. Uh, my buddy has a flat earth episode, and then I have an actual astrophysicist come on my show and talk about it. But more people like the flat earth episode because they enjoy the ideas behind it. They enjoy that it's going to get – and that's just the world we're in is a lot of people want to know the craziest thing possible. That's what They want to see crazy things on a TikTok. They want to see crazy things on YouTube. My whole push for is why I kind of I'm not a conspiracy person at all, but I entertain the ideas for sure, mostly because it's a way of getting someone interested into a topic. But it also there is the conspiracy people that just even when they see the evidence, when it's right in front of them, they don't want to back down from their position. They want to keep going and just go blind to the evidence. And that's when it becomes more toxic for me. I have friends that will tell me dinosaurs don't exist. And they'll be on an episode telling me that. And I'm like, all right, well, I know paleontologists, so I'll talk to them. I talk to them. They tell me here's all the reasons why it all does exist is because right behind me is a fucking dinosaur and he's in a museum and he points at it. Um, then when the flat earth thing comes up, I talk to an astrophysicist. When someone brings up an idea about the pyramids, I, I used to like someone told me that nobody was actually buried inside of the pyramids. Now, I don't know too much about that, but that's what I thought was their final resting place was in the pyramid with all of these nice things that they belong to. Hey, you know, want to know why um, people say that, that no one was buried in a pyramid? Because they were all robbed in antiquity, but remains have been found in pyramids. That's what I thought. Yeah, they have. And like, even though some of those remains uh, were later people being, were later kind of kings and queens being buried into what we know are older pyramids, it's like they usurped that burial place. And it makes you wonder, well, if it wasn't meant for burial, why would later generations have wanted to usurp it in the first place but also also um 
there are abandoned pyramids as well. So obviously no one was buried in them because they weren't, they were never finished. So that does, that's one of those things that comes up again and again. Why has no one ever been found in the pyramid? Actually, someone has. Um, there was a princess found in a satellite pyramid. Uh, I think it was a Saqqara. Again, I'd have to double check. I wish I'd reread my notes on that course before we had this conversation actually. But um, so there, there have been remains that seem to be contemporary found in not one of the main pyramids in a like a, another sister pyramid. This is the thing, there were satellite pyramids around those pyramids, which were made for the relatives of the deceased kings or pharaohs. Um, so another question is, well, you know, what's the point of those if they're not for those burials? But again, if we, if we approach the tomb security problem from a pragmatic standpoint, what we're seeing is their response to that problem was clearly the wrong one because what they did was made it a bigger target and those things got robbed. And, and so one of the questions that comes up is like, why were no more pyramids built and why were they all inferior? Well, for one thing, there was a huge economic uh, and social collapse at the end of the pyramid age because the pharaohs had centralized power and wealth so much that the discrepancy had clearly become so great and they had used so many resources to build these three freaking massive pyramids on the Giza Plateau, let alone all the failed ones from the fourth dynasty, uh, the third dynasty and the fourth dynasty. You know, it's, it's just like there was this whole situation where the entire civilization was built around building pyramids and it could not be sustained. It wasn't a sustainable model for a civilization. And uh, Bruce Trigger kind of puts it in terms of a thermodynamic thing where this is an energy output of a civilization to show how powerful they've become. The problem is they ended up spending all that energy and all their resources. Like the, um, the accounts that we have, we've got ledgers of what the pyramid builders were being paid and how they were being fed. And they were getting through thousands of cattle like they, they had these huge farming areas and they're getting through all this meat, which wasn't a regular part of the Egyptian diet, obviously, because meat as it was, is uh, a fairly not sustainable thing on a kind of agrarian, like it's, it has to be little and often rather than all meat all the time. Again, yeah. not sustainable in a, in a small civilization. Did right? they not figure out salt yet to put salt on the food yet? Um, food preservation is a, that's a really good question, actually. I mean, they would have had access to salt, natron especially, because it was used for washing, and they knew how to preserve bodies. We know that from mummification. But again, that was trial and error. So I'm guessing they weren't making beef jerky around the time of the fourth dynasty. Um, but Damn the shame. point being is just that, you know, the pyramids disappear uh, disappear. They become much smaller and less significant. And most of them are collapsed and lost and, you know, elsewhere. They're, they're in different cult centers. And it's like, it's not that the Egyptians forgot. And it's not that someone had come, someone else had come along and built them for them. It's that their civilization economically collapsed. There was no central authority or government for a long time, decades. And um, the techniques of building these things were not there was, you know, there, there was no library back then. There was no set of blueprints for anyone to come along. This was all knowledge that had been developed by the state. That state had collapsed. And then they had to figure out and reverse engineer what they could see to keep doing what they were doing. But they equally didn't have the resources or even the human power, so to speak, if we put it in thermodynamic terms again. Um, they didn't have access to those bodies of people again for a long time yeah. and then we see a different emphasis of that use in temples and that's when the great temples start being created so it, it opens up a different set of political and economic circumstances you know now you were mentioning before about the like you know about the bodies for instance is it like the great wall of china it was a symbol of something but the amount of people that was taken and like the amount of production energy that was put into using it, it took a long time to be able to finish off. But there was a lot of people that were just like, it's kind of like the mummy where there are people buried into the walls. That's kind of like the Great Wall of China in a way. A lot of people died building this giant thing, which is what we have today. And then I'm guessing over through the conditions of Egypt and all the sand and wind that goes along just ended up degrading the pyramids down because there was nobody maintaining the buildings that were there. It just was well, built. 
there's, there's two reasons for that. I mean, uh, I don't think many remains have been found in the mortar of the, the pyramids, so to speak, but um, those pyramids were stripped for building materials, which is why they don't have a limestone casing anymore. And that's helped them degrade because the stone underneath was not meant to be exterior stone. And that's why that's worn down. So, so yeah. th they were deteriorating because that someone stole the outside layer of the pyramids? S several generations of people stole the limestone from the outside of the pyramids, yeah. Over that, multiple, is, multiple centuries. Did they know that's, that's what would degrade it? Or is it a concept of the value of those blocks? Well, stone, I mean, pre-worked stone is useful. That stone had been quarried. So if you don't have to quarry stone, then that's advantageous. Um, you know, there are lots of reasons you would want to just take stone off an existing building rather than quarry it out and cut it down and try and make a straight line out of it yourself. Yeah. You know, but also I'm, I'm guessing that, yeah, like the, the, the particular stones that were taken would have had some kind of value, be it direct value to your architectural needs or value in the sense of, oh, this is nice limestone. We can use this. A whole bunch of it is actually apparently in some of the um, earliest mosques and stuff like that underneath the Cairo city. My brain uh, went to like a different direction with like one of three ways is one that they were tearing it down and then selling it. Two is that they were salvaging it and using it on another building, much like if a kid has Legos and they're building something, they could take something from another contraption and add to that one. Or the third was, did they think they had the type of consciousness of the situation that they were in when it comes to the state's power and being able to tear down maybe like how we have civilizations that tear themselves down where they riot or they do some type of thing. Do you think that could be a possibility that they could have figured out, like, I don't want this built in honor of this guy. I want it taken down. And then that could have been something that might've been happening at the time. That's a really good question. And it's an interesting question. Um, I think we, we have to kind of be a little bit cautious in projecting our own uh, societal attitudes on ancient people that we kind of have more limited information about. Obviously, some pharaohs, possibly most pharaohs, but certainly some pharaohs would have been tyrannical. And we're looking at centralized power with potentially quite a dictatorial hierarchy, right? Um, and if that's the case, then it's entirely possible that when that power fell, when that centralized government fell, people would have gone, let's, you know, let's take this apart. But it seems like rather than try to destroy the pyramids, really like destroy them, because let's face it, that that's a lot of work. Um, the dismantling seems to have been more like you say, scavenging for building materials for other things. I mean, it was, it was valuable stone. You're right. And you could, if you were a, a you know, a farmer who was not doing well, or if you were a peasant and you kind of see these huge things with all this stone, if you can get enough people together to take some of that limestone off, limestone off and sell it to the people who are now, you know, going and building things, um, why wouldn't you? Is it a And then later, okay. sorry, Rob, go on. I was saying, is it, if it's a possibility now when they were tearing it down and maybe salvaging it for other parts, this couldn't have been why that dynasty or with that generation was still alive, right? Because if you see maybe if they had a family member or someone that was a second up um, to the king who just died, and they put him into the tomb, you would see the pyramid being taken down and you would probably raise hell and try and fight those people off. So maybe that happened later or did that happen around the same time period? It seems, it seems very likely that a lot of, well, we do have some accounts of destruction from the ancient world. Um, I am not a walking library, unfortunately, so I can't remember these specific periods. I'm sorry. I would have, I would have had you prep notes or something. I didn't oh, no, think I was okay. going to ask these questions. I'm like super interested into this. Oh, it's just the way it kind of tumbles out sometimes, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something I haven't thought about for a little while, but there are accounts of chaos and disorder in the first intermediate period. And they're mostly from, well, they, they have to be from semi-nobles because they can write. Your average commoner couldn't write. I mean, you know, we're talking about maybe possibly 1% of the population could read and write in ancient Egypt. Um, so if people are leaving records saying there's chaos and disorder, those people are nobles more than likely because they're the only people who would have been, had the, the resources and the educations that you would need to do that. Um, so yeah, like in the first intermediate period, we know that there were a number of warring factions 
um, people vying for power. The the kind of districts got broken up between different essentially feudal lords and multiple different claims to kingship. And then, you know, eventually it all gets kind of reunified and stuff um, under the, um, what is it? it's the 12th dynasty, isn't it? Eventually that it, it happens. But again, haven't thought about this stuff in a long time. So, uh, but the, the um, we know that a lot of the limestone casing kind of ended up in Cairo in different buildings that were, there was, there were huge building projects happening after the seventh century. Um, as early, actually earlier as well, because the Greeks, even though they really, well, they claimed to really respect the ancient ways of the Egyptians. But if you look at some of the, the way some of the generations of Greeks who were ruling in Alexandria under the Ptolemaic dynasty. So after, long story short, after um, Alexander the Great goes and conquers Persia basically um, and kicks kicks all of the current invading forces out of Egypt. He then takes over Egypt as the, the ruling God King and dies kind of shortly thereafter on another campaign out to India, right? And then he he kind of leaves, leaves his empire to the fittest, essentially, to whoever can control it. Uh, Ptolemy the first, he's one of his generals, Ptolemy, decides to, to take Egypt and um, he uh, he establishes a dynasty. So we're talking about um, what would this have been around 300, so around around the fourth century BC, um, and then or third century BC, and then um, we've got this line of Ptolemies who are ruling from Alexandria and not necessarily a part of the Egyptian population per se. They're just kind of Alexandria is its own thing almost. It's quite a Greek city in Egypt, and they would have had access to all of this stuff. They had plenty of opportunity to, um, to you know, take bits from elsewhere and pull them into the city and do stuff with them. So we see like some obelisks going missing from temples, ending up in Alexandria. So who knows what else they cannibalized at the time. Um, but uh, then, of course, you know, you had Roman rule and then Arab rule. So it changed hands a number of times, um, and you know, you had Ottoman Empire as well and stuff like that. So. Like you've got all these different parties vying for control of the resources of the country, yeah. any of whom and all of whom were interested in building their own stuff whilst they were there, understandably, um, because building stuff was the way you expressed power back in the day. And it's how you kind of, you know, consolidated your power by going, this is my palace. This is my temple. They, these are the signifiers of my rule. And, you know, I'm in charge now. I'm the boss now. When you mentioned earlier about like cattle, so that means they had to have farmland. So it's not a conspiracy or a crazy idea that there obviously was water that was found in Egypt. Um, the Nile is the source of basically all the water in Egypt. It was, they had to irrigate the Nile. But when most people think of Egypt, they think of just sand and they think of the pyramids, obviously. But I'm, I'm wondering, were there large areas of farmland and would that because I look at like there's a movie called Year One with Jack Black. It's a, it's a crazy funny movie, but it's it's dumb to get any knowledge or information on it. But when he, they start questioning if there has to be something beyond that, I start looking at that. That's when some of this limestone, if it wasn't taken over or conquered or taken from another civilization, was ended up being traded. And this is how in history we have a lot of things that ended up somewhere that shouldn't weren't even known to that location was from trading. So I'm wondering if that was from a farm hand or if that was from someone that just decided to explore past what they could see and see if that goes even farther. And that's where I get a little bit interested in is that that thinking. Because when we talk about like the idea that like maybe there was a bunch of people rioting that wanted to take down the pyramid, it's just an idea. It's not fact, obviously, but it's that's we see that shit happen today. And I know we can't base societal thinking off that, but that's kind of how history has kind of gone. There's primal things or just random above the age thinkers. Leonardo da Vinci can be one of them based on his time period. There's always this type of person that is thinking something different. And it's not for us a very, very advanced idea to think that someone would just be like kicked out and explore a little bit past whatever that simulation goes. But 
I don't know if that's too advanced for that primitive style, but we also, they did amazing things in comparison when we look at they were primitive back then by maybe sacrificing or doing, ripping out a heart or whatever it is. They were still very, very advanced when it came to the type of art that they left behind in a form of history, the type of education. There had to be some type of education like you were mentioning before about talking about maybe the nobles looking at a bunch of people that were maybe sparking up or making work outside. If I was lived in a mansion my whole entire life and I saw a bunch of people just like, you know, dancing on the street, I'd be like, they're peasants. You know what I mean? So it's, it's not different than how we look at now. It's just that things around us have really evolved our thinking in a way that is a little bit different, but there's still some primal basic knowledge foundations or footsteps that we are still following in such a way where it's kind of linked to back then as a little bit as well too. Yeah, there's a common thread of, of humanity and um, human behavior. And we all have that. I think it's fair to say that, you know, we, we share a survival instinct and a desire for freedom probably across all millennia. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Like the, the Egyptians were, especially for their time, a very advanced people. And we know conceptually they were an interesting kind of advanced people, even though it's advanced in a way that we, a different way to how we think about advancement. You know, like we think about advancement being we have these medicines and we have these sciences and we can calculate these things and we can make robots and crap like that. Uh, and the Egyptians were were advanced in the way that they the way that they conceived of the world and the way that they developed responses technological responses to their problems that's just how societies tend to work like you say so yeah like their problems were hashtag egypt problems hashtag pharaoh's problems like and and they would have definitely had like i said periods where pharaoh would have been unjust nobles would have been unjust taxes would have been too high Yes, there was a, quite a lot of agriculture. There's a very verdant strip either side of the Nile that was irrigated. And there are some theories that the centralization of power actually happened because the pharaoh at the time, or rather the chief or tribe leader at the time, who could control the Nile and access to the water from the Nile was the one that ended up in charge. So if you, if you started like controlling the irrigation of all the farmers over the country if you started figuring out well you know we we're going to cut off water here um and i have enough manpower to do that for instance then uh then you're in charge you know because no one can grow anything so it's interesting to think about how the centralization of power happened when there was no quote-unquote military industrial complex right it's like the idea of mass slavery in ancient Egypt doesn't really work without social control because there's no automatic weapons. There's no guns. You know, this, the pyramids weren't built by slaves. People were paid to build them. Now, whether that pay and that lifestyle was rewarding enough that it was truly their choice is something we can't glean from the record. But we could probably say, well, it looks like a really hard life, but it does look like they were really well fed. So it looks like they're being compensated quite well for what they're doing. That's interesting because it implies that maybe there was some choice and that some people would choose this life and to settle in this town and build pyramids rather than take their chances trying to produce crop and knowing that if the Nile doesn't get the annual Nile flood, because it didn't always happen, the inundation didn't always happen. You have the blue Nile and the white Nile and they meet. And every year there's supposed to be an inundation but some years there wasn't enough rainfall, uh, usually around the kind of, um, be like Ethiopia. If there wasn't enough rainfall there, then the Nile didn't inundate further north because it flowed from uh, south to north, contrary to how we think about, you know, upper and lower Egypt. Yeah. Upper Egypt is southern and lower Egypt is northern and it meets the Mediterranean. So there's a lot of kind of practical geographical aspects to how this civilization evolved and we can see that in the symbolism but equally you know there's a lot of kind of mystical stuff in their symbolism as well and it's really interesting when you look at both comparatively and go these gods exist because they needed a flood and they needed to appeal to someone for that flood to happen these gods existed because childbirth was dangerous and they wanted protection in the home you know, these demons existed because they couldn't explain how these maladies happened. So they gave them names and drew pictures of them, 
you know, and they, they were things that brought you nightmares or sickness. And they would, these, these rituals existed to counter those demons, except they started developing technological ways of dealing with them by using certain substances like alchemy, um, alchemet of Kemet, which is the original name for Egypt. What do you think the major shift was that really just, I, I don't know, I wouldn't say died out or kind of ended this whole entire era where we don't see a lot of our buildings being like pyramids now? Like, why didn't that take over more farther? Because like, I've been talking to people that study like Roman history, Greek history, Norse mythology, and it always seems to be like a giant prior of psychedelics or some type of drug that really brought the spirituality and kind of boosted it in such a way. And it's like, you wonder what we're missing in society today. Like everyone talks about how, why the, why is the world just gone to like shit? Why is it under this? I think it's a multitude of factors, but I look at the factor of like, we still have religion, we still have government, but we still don't have psychedelics. Now, I'm not a psychedelic person myself, but I look at the concept of that boosts spirituality. A lot of these religious texts, you know, even is it was it Graham Hancock had talked about finding in the inside of a chalice of some of these remnants was like LSD or some type of uh, peyote, I think it was, that was stuck inside of these. Um, oh, I've heard about that, yeah. So I'm, I'm just curious to see if it was the drop off of psychedelics or maybe this hindrance of this type of drug that lo people lost the in touch of spirituality. I mean, eventually we evolve past spirituality to use technology and find scientific methods behind the brain. And then people still want to say, no, well, it's God. It's unexplainable. OK, that's cool. You believe that? I'm going to check this out over here. But. I look at like that was a major influence in so many civilizations and with Norse mythology, they just totally spaced it out. They didn't talk about the Vikings taking fly algaric mushrooms. That's something you have to really learn on your own time. They don't teach that in the history books. All they teach you is about pillaging and you don't realize the advancement of that culture in a whole. And I, I was just wondering if there was any talks of psychedelic medicines or psychedelic drugs that people were taking in Egypt that there seemed to be a branch off with. I think the short answer to that is um, no, entirely likely. Um, okay. Is it right? So yes, and I, I kind of, I'm kind of with you on the idea of psychedelics playing a role uh, beyond recreational, in so much as we can see. Because if I take mushrooms, use... I'm going to see a fucking jackal head on a person. I can tell you that. Right. Much. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like some of the imagery that we find for instance, in some of the uh, imagery of the Book of the Dead, for example, and even the pyramid texts, which are the oldest texts, religious texts that we have really, um, possibly the oldest religious texts in the world, if I remember rightly. Um, these things were seen by the Victorians who discovered them, who were looking at them through a very kind of Christianized lens as gobbledygook, right? Because they couldn't understand what they were, what they were interpreting. If you re-examine those things in the light of well, it's basically taking an open mind and saying, well, what concepts are they getting at here? You find something that's a bit more shamanic in a way. And even though that's not quite the right terminology, because shamanic really means anything kind of post Upanishads and, um, you know, stuff like that. It, it's, it's still something that alludes to some kind of out of body experience potentially. Um, I do touch on this a little bit, actually, in Profane Egyptologists, because there's some some kind of discussion of uh, Jeremy Nadler's work where he finds shamanic, shamanic wisdom in the pyramid texts um, is one of his books. And it's entirely likely uh, that um, various substances, and I can't remember the names off the top of my head, were being used in ritual uh, in ancient Egypt. Now, is that the only cause for the changes we see? No, of course not. You know, there's huge social, political, military, geographical causes for the end of, to come back to your original question, the end of the pyramid age, you know, really the pyramid stopped being built because centralized government realized they were a real drain on resources, had collapsed. The previous dynasties had ushered in what we call the first intermediate period where there's no I put that in air quotes for anyone on audio, where there's no centralized government and kind of quote unquote chaos ruled. Um, and these were generally seen by people in authority as bad times. And the people in authority want good times. So they go back to, when they go back to monumental building, they, instead of just honoring the king, they start honoring the gods. And we see more temples 
happening and we see the kings being honored in their honoring of the gods so it becomes a different expression of political power but it's still an expression of political power in a lot of ways mm -hmm. um and why does that change well that's that changes because cultural values change um as different groups so as the greeks came in the cultural values changed and you see the the gods being worshipped start to change and i think you would then start to see eventually the rituals of Egypt themselves changing because really what's happening is the, the temples that were no longer, so the religious center moved around Egypt numerous times and the, the gods that were in favor, we generally see are connected to whatever area and whatever um, dynasty uh, is connected to the God of those priesthoods. And that's where we see the religious center for a different period change so it moves around and it goes from Cairo like Heliopolis down to Thebes and you know moves down and that means that the political landscape is changing at that period in time right so if if a bunch of people come in say from Greece who are ruling the country from Alexandria well of course there's less resources going to the temples down in Thebes for instance uh, there's less money going to them there's less tax going to them and so the motivation to be a priest and to maintain those rituals unless you're extraordinarily devoted and there's to be fair a lot of evidence for piety and personal faith in ancient egypt even though some egyptologists i mean that's something that egyptologists are still debating to this day but um there's plenty of evidence to say that there were individuals individuals who had faith in those gods but as a career choice it becomes a different question can i still be a priest and undertake these rituals realistically when all the money's now up north in Alexandria? Or do I go up to Alexandria and try and join the priesthood there or do something different? Either way, you're not partaking in those original rituals anymore and you're not partaking in whatever concoctions may have been used in said rituals. Because we know that, again, alchemy comes from the, the name of Egypt, of Egypt, Alchemet. So we know that... Um, we know that there was use of substances. We don't know if it was recreational per se, other than alcohol was definitely used in recreational ways which were tied to ritual. Um, but what we can see is almost certainly there would have been a change in those practices as the economic landscape changes and the religious landscape, which is inherently tied to the state at the time, changes with it. So that's a really long way to answer your question. Sorry, dude, but yeah. Do you think when the power kind of went from building these pyramids for one person and then it got involved to building pyramids for a god or for the gods up above, do you think it was because the transition of power? Like a king has power for sure, but a god, if you're looking to something that you can't see, there is no face to it, but it creates such magnificent supernatural things such as rain, such as earthquakes, storms, whatever you want to call it. Do you think that insight, that kind of was a way of someone who was in power noticing the shift happening and being able to be like, hey, we can still build these things? Or do you think it was a more of a community aspect with the way that people were thinking is that because if you're building something for a king, you're like, well, it's for this fucking guy. But if you're building something for a god, religion is like that still today. People will do things in the name of God. People do things in the name of religion. It's much harder to do something in the name of whoever you're you're talking about, one singular person. But someone that is someone you can't see, something that's omnificent, something that is unexplainable, it's much easier to break your fucking back or slip a disc when you're putting blocks down. I think you've uh, you've hit on a really, really important point there, and it's a very accurate assessment in a lot of ways because the change in power between just the pharaoh and the priesthood is noticeable over the span of Egyptian history. So we get to like the Middle Kingdom and the power of the priesthood has increased massively. Um, and there were reasons for that. You know, the, the parts of the reasons for that were that the uh, just in the same way that the church kind of gobbled up land in medieval Britain, you know, um, the, the taxes essentially that were paid. Um, well, you had donations from the pharaoh to the servants of the gods for the temple. And so the servants of the gods at the temple ended up, you know, whoever was running the temples in ancient Egypt, they became responsible for an awful lot of the land's wealth because they had these donations quote unquote coming in um land set aside for growing crop so that the political and the religious 
kind of theocratic systems were linked in like this and supporting each other. And that way we see that the priesthood ends up influencing the way that the kingship plays out. And we see that happening no more clearly than when Akhenaten tries to usurp um, and invert the religious paradigm of Egypt by talking about the Aten and bringing in a kind of form of proto-monotheism almost. And the, um, the priesthood of Amun respond after his death by changing the name of his son from Tutak Aten into Tutank Amun, who of course becomes one of the most famous pharaohs in all of history, if only because his tomb was intact where others weren't. Um, so yes, absolutely. We definitely see evidence of the conception and the power of priesthood changing over time where originally it was just Pharaoh and Pharaoh was essentially God on earth in the same way that some places still conceive of their ruler as being, you know, the intermediary to God. Um, Pharaoh was literally conceived of as a God, but of course, after several generations of Pharaoh dying, you know, or getting sick and being interred, eventually you have to accept and adapt and go, okay, Pharaoh is God on earth as a representation of divine kingship and rulership. Um, however, we're not going to just build tribute to Pharaoh, even though they still did that in like statues and monuments and stuff like that. What we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to um, represent and emphasize the Pharaoh with the gods donating to the gods you know, in the name, and we make all of our donations and our prayers to the gods via the Pharaoh. Um, Hotep Dinisu uh, is a, a hieroglyphic Egyptian formula, which is um, an offering on behalf of the king. And that's how almost all offering stelae from the ancient world open with this Hotep Dinisu formula, an offering the king gives. If, whoever's giving the offering, it's an offering the king's giving to the gods. So the Pharaoh's still this intermediary, but absolutely, as you say, the priesthood is becoming much more powerful and much more responsible for a lot of the wealth and the grain and all of that stuff that Egypt's got. And so it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Weren't you telling me about the priest that was willing to sacrifice himself for people to get rain? And then I, I forgot something happened right before and then rain happened. There was some type. OK, I was saying I heard somebody, <laughs> heard somebody mention something to me before about a priest that was I forgot he was willing to sacrifice himself for the people to get rain or something like that. And then right as he was about to sacrifice himself, um, rain happened and he talked about it, it was a sign that he was the prophet or he was this uh, word of God in a way. That's one of those kind of cool story bro moments, isn't it? That's what I'm saying. I was like, I want to know if that shit's real. I was like, because because <laughs> I had a person um, who was leaving Mormonism many times in his life, and he finally eventually did. But he was telling me that there was three times he was looking for faith. And at this point in life, when you're looking, when you're about to lose religion and you're looking for any sign, then anything can become a sign for to mm -hmm. stay in that religion. And he had multiple encounters. I was like. I was like, yeah, that is a crazy thing, but it's just you're making it crazy because you're already looking for something to keep you holding on to that. And I was wondering about that story because I think for a lot of people, like that's obviously it's just a coincidence moment. They'd be like, oh, it's raining now. It's obviously not anything different, but it, I don't know. This is just fascinating to me. I was like, I, I thought it was you that told me that a while ago. I'm trying to remember back from our first episode. I didn't listen back to it, but I'm from everything talking, especially you're in like the same room too. So I'm able to like, <laughs> get those flashbacks and stuff, but yeah, man, I mean, it's because the psychedelics thing from learning more and more and more, I've heard from different areas and it just seems like it makes a lot of sense, especially when you're talking about religion became a little bit more powerful the priest eventually starts to let that power go to his head and you start seeing a lot of things, you know, more people are willing to sacrifice or give anything that they want um, just for maybe something for themselves. If they just give it to the priest and the priest can communicate it to the God above. Uh, yeah. But I think you answered most of my questions when it came to like the pyramids. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, there's more detail on that. Um, on listenable shameless plug i've got a whole whole course on yeah, pyramids let, let on, people know where they can hear you yeah 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 i mean there's there's the course on listenable uh which is an audio platform which is like you know just audio courses short short lessons 10 minutes long there's like 10 episodes i think of that 
which is all about the evolution of um, mustabas, tomb spaces, uh, grave pits, mustabas, step pyramids, true pyramids, how the pyramids came about, and then it counters some of the kind of conspiracy theory and alternative Egyptology in that course as well. And I kind of wish I'd reread it so I could give you some more specifics, but it's all there. I mean, it's all, you know, it's all done, but the human brain is a funny old thing. You know, you, you kind of, if the more information you take in, the, the more just self deletes and, um, and I'm having to refresh myself all the time. So, I mean, one of the things I've, I've kind of done is moved away from, academic Egyptology, you know, naturally anyway, because of the way that uh, the field has gone as we touched on. So um, I'm no longer really, technically I'm not an academic anymore per se, you know, like I have a PhD and I've done all the reading and I've checked all the boxes and um, I have several friends who are still working in the field. And I occasionally kind of talk and communicate with the field and do things with them. But increasingly I'm, I'm kind of more in an entrepreneurial space where i'm actually just writing and trying to put out courses and stuff like that and um and so i'm finding that uh you know what it's like when you're you must find this doing your podcast as well when you're getting new information in all the time it's pushing other stuff out uh especially once you're in your 40s and you know there's there's just too much information in there something has to go so i mean you yeah. got the profane podcast that's a great name is what i'm talking about that's you got that name yeah. so i'm like you Thanks, might as man. well and i think what's good even the good part about you not being really what you would say as a specific academic is the mm -hmm. factor of you don't have any worry about what words come out of your mouth that you can free truly freely speak you don't know how many conversations i've had with academics from any type of course you can name i've talked to someone in that field even at one point I was going to talk to someone who was researching badger fucking, but that went down the drain. But it gets, <laughs> it gets that specific on things. And you got to realize like, there's a couple people that, like, I can't say this. And I'm like, you understand that in the world right now, that anybody's career, anybody's life goals, even the pandemic should have showed you that everything is so sensitive and you can lose it just like that. You might as well do as much as you possibly can. And sadly, what gets more people's attention is when an academic or someone comes on and teaches these things, but not in the strict school manner. They want it fucking hitting you with fun facts they want you hitting it with something fun or do some type of stupid thing or just being outright with it like hey no the fucking earth's not flat let's get to this and then you understand it gets a little bit deeper because now you're talking like how they would talk to a friend at a bar and that's you know that's the best way i soak up information is by having someone like yourself on my show and giving me your time to be able to talk about some things that are up in my head and learn a little bit too because you soak up more information when it's more acceptable to your ears and what's acceptable to my ears is just talking to you one-on-one -on -one. i you want to talk about a cure for academic studies i said that'll happen when i can get an anthropologist and a person who studies indigenous studies in a room together without them fucking tearing each other apart because that's it never happens those they have two conflicting things one person wants the other person to understand that this course of history went this way and that people need to pay and apologize for all that the other person goes you can't hold that at that time because that's the time thinking that's not necessarily every person now's thinking we've evolved from that and we cannot forget that but science right now is on the chopping block any type of academic really is on the chopping block on a concept of what's going to be next. It could be archaeology one minute and then it's going to be something else the next because people don't like history and they don't like it because they don't like how the way it's aged. And I was just like, if you're just blunt about it, you should be happy that it pisses you off because now it shows that you've evolved as a person. And that's the best way you can get a bunch of social justice warriors on your side is by just saying, yeah, we don't think like that anymore. I watched Steven Crowder trying to rationalize Thanksgiving to a bunch of people like prove me wrong type things. And I'm like, he's not wrong, but he's a dick the way he's coming off. And it's like, <laughs> it's not really about the thing of that, but the 50 years of peace that came afterwards, the fact mm -hmm. that you should be thankful for what you have in your life. And I thought that was important to highlight because that's not what gets talked about every single time. It's about, you know, what Christopher Columbus did. I'm like, all right, I fucking, I don't have to apologize for Christopher Columbus just because of my color of my skin, but people want that. And I look at it like, I don't know where science is going to end up going to, but I feel like academics like you or you're still an academic, whether you're not active in it or not, you still have so much knowledge into your head that can be given to a bunch of people and you're charismatic. So, I mean, I'd love to have you back on my show. Like I said, just talk. And if anything, I'll send me those listenable things that you're talking about. I can link it to the episode for other people out there listening to, and I can also Appreciate do some that, research on my own and be able to study a little bit and then have you back on and 
talk on more specific topics so you can explain a whole bunch about them and get some notes lined up and everything, even though I don't like notes, but it's, <laughs> I think it's important because anybody out there listening right now to this episode is going to be like, I never knew any of this stuff. It's like, no, because Egypt's so far away. Nobody talks about it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we're not, yeah. we're, we're more focused on like what happened a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, not what happened 2000 years ago. I go, well, that's the best place to start is 2000 years ago or however long mm -hmm. ago, because it's not fresh. It's not going to hurt you when you find out that George Washington's teeth weren't made of cherry wood. They were made of slave teeth. It's a thousand percent easier on the burns. You know what I'm saying? So it's just easier to educate on a more conversational platform and be able to realize that like an academic, like you didn't, throughout this whole entire episode, you never talked down to me. And I think that's one of the main things that a person needs to do to be able to educate people or even be able to talk to someone is most of the world is focused on talking down or shaming someone because I don't want to hear what you have to say. This is what I believe. And this is what's right. You're wrong. And it's constantly that. And I'm like, that's not how we work together as a community. It's not how the world has gotten to the place that it's gotten to. It's now falling yeah. apart because of that thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I you know, one of the things I always wanted to do, there's another one of those sides, but one of the things I always wanted to do, you can tell I'm just old and tired now, but one of the things I always wanted to do was try and get people talking again, instead of mischaracterizing each other and assuming they knew what the other person was going to say, and then, and then talking over them. Like that's been happening in every field, in every, you know, political and historical and, and every response to that has seems to have been conflicted rather than constructive and we can do a lot more good by trying to understand the point that and the need that the other party has and going okay i see where you're coming from and here's either the stuff that supports that or here's the stuff that refutes that but whichever way it lands it shouldn't matter like i don't have a dog in that fight you know and i guess like that speaks to what you're saying as well is that part of the thing about ancient history is that we can be a little bit more abstract and a little bit more objective about it. But equally, I am seeing increasingly, much to my chagrin, the projection of modern values onto the ancient world. And you know what? Like, when I was in academia, I was encouraged to use certain lenses through which to view the ancient world. And some of those things came from, you know, like, Gramsci and Marxism and stuff like that because they're ways of analyzing power essentially but the thing that I always tried to bear in mind whilst I was doing that was that this is a lens and these are theories and these deconstructions can't be applied everywhere do you know what I mean like this is just this is just theory making like we can't just go and project this into the world everywhere suddenly like this isn't the key to everything this is just an idea, a model through which to view something. And I think part of the problem that we're getting at the moment is that people are taking those ideas or those cultural lenses and then thinking they've got the key to reality and applying them to everything. So, you know, if you use a, if you, if you're educated in um, post-modernist theory, for instance, or post-Marxism or any of those things in a university, or you are, you know, reading the work of someone who's using that as a lens, you then go out onto the world and project it onto everything. What happens when you project one lens onto everything? Well, there's exactly the same thing that the Christians did back when they were interpreting the ancient Egyptians through a Christian lens. They misinterpreted it, or they only saw what they were looking for. Like you say, you go out looking for one thing through a particular lens, you'll find it probably, but it might not have been there without you doing that. So yeah, it's, um, it's, it's becoming an in increasingly difficult, topic the ancient world as different groups try to lay claim to um not, not necessarily ownership but heritage of and then cultural ownership becomes a question and then abstract things like slavery in the ancient world start kind of sparking and triggering conversations and stuff like that and people get very emotionally connected to those things and i think one of the most useful things we can do in those situations is take a breath and step back and go well hold up a second like First, we don't know per se, you know, like traditionally speaking, we don't really know what the numbers were of these practices and how this would have shook down. And we've got very few kind of individual accounts of, of what was happening here. But we we're also we're building a picture out of a jigsaw of like scraps of evidence. And we probably should be really, really wary about projecting our own modern 
ideological models onto those things and making value judgments attached to those things rather than trying to understand those people on their own terms, which I think is really the goal, right? Is that we try and understand ancient cultures on their terms without bringing in modern moral judgments about them. Like um, I'm seeing some moral judgment about the idea of kingship starting to come up in my field. And it's like, well, okay, but this was the first or, or certainly one of the first nations to ever experiment with that idea. If you now bring 5,000 years of reflection onto power hierarchies and kingship and patriarchies and all that stuff and project that onto the ancient world, then you're going to start distorting our actual understanding of it objectively because you're viewing it through those lenses. So they're tools and they're useful tools, don't get me wrong. Like it can be very useful to look at the way that power dynamics might have played out in the ancient world, for instance, between different groups and different like, um, you know, religious groups, for instance, or different genders or any of those things. And it's like, yeah, those are tools and they're interesting. They're not the final word. They're not the key to life. They are theoretical models. And we need to kind of remember that and exactly like you say, not just presume we've got the right of it and everyone else has got the wrong of it because they're using a different lens. It's like, no, like, just accept that you're using a theoretical model. That's all it is. Yeah. And we don't know the truth. So we probably shouldn't get angry about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Paul, I appreciate you for doing my podcast again. I'd love to get you back on. Um, like I said, I want to listen over to some of that stuff that you were talking about before. Has at least said listenables? Listen, I've got a course on Listenable. I think the first class is free. The first one is actually free on my YouTube as well. So one of the things I didn't mention was that I'd, I've tied up the audio version of my podcast. Maybe we'll talk about that next time. But everything is on YouTube now. Profane Egyptology. It's all on YouTube now. And moving forward, all of the new episodes that are coming fall for season three going onwards will be YouTube. So that's where I'll be. Well, while we're on air, I might as well do it. I'm going to hit the subscribe button. Thank you. Appreciate that, man. And it's not the Profane History Podcast, or it is? It used to be the Profane Humanities Podcast, but that has gone. That is now retired. And it's Profane Egyptology over on YouTube right now. I may expand it out past Egypt eventually, but I'm just kind of focusing on the cool stuff that I like that I'm kind of known for. Subscribe. You know? 22 episodes or 22 videos. Yeah, we go. That's the one. It's small, but growing. Bump up those subscriber numbers. People follow <laughs> and subscribe to the show. Um, I'll make sure I link it in the show notes. Is there anything, Paul, you want to say before we wrap up the show? Thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I, I can get passionate and ramble a little bit. So sorry about that. But I, that's a uh, it was really experience fun. experience for me. <laughs> cool. cool. Yeah, it was really fun. Really fun being on. It's always fun talking to you. So. Thank you for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for our next episode.